we were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. 25 years ago, there wasn't a market in commercial remote sensing imagery. That's changed. And one of the people who helped change that is Walter Scott. Currently, Maxar's executive vice president and chief technical officer. He was there at the beginning when he founded DigiGlobe in 1992. He's also worked at Lawrence Livermore and at other companies and is a leader in the new space industry that's driving change today. So folks who work in the space industry know Maxar, uh, but for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the company, can you give sort of an overview of what the company does? Sure. You're actually probably familiar with Maxar. You just don't know it. If you've ever listened to Sirius XM radio, uh, we build those satellites. We actually have built uh, well over 300 uh, commercial communication satellites, um, like over 90 of them on orbit today. We build the robot arms on Mars, and uh, we're the ones who provide the satellite imagery that pretty much you see everywhere. If you've been watching the satellite imagery of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the vast majority of that satellite imagery comes from Baxar. So pretty broad uh, across both building things in space and operating things in space and increasing use of artificial intelligence to be able to process the data deluge that's coming from space. Right. You do just about everything except for build the rockets that take your satellites to space. Uh, we fly on rockets that somebody else builds, and that's a good thing. That's great. the cost of space transportation is coming down, and I think that's going to unlock a lot of opportunities. Excellent. So uh, Maxar is obviously involved in just about every type of technology that's used in the space industry. What does a chief technology officer do? Uh, well, I often describe it as a chief troublemaker. A good chunk of what I do is find opportunities to connect different parts of the company that happen to have complementary technologies. I'm usually the one who's driving new initiatives. So we're going to go at, get into this new area. That's usually what I end up doing. Uh, so it's finding areas that are that are white space, that are either white space opportunities for the company that are applying a key technology to a problem that we know our customers have, or white space inside the company, which is connecting the left hand and the right hand up to be more effective than either was alone. What technologies are most interesting to you now? What's the new technology that you, you want to see Maxar pick up? Well, there's stuff that we're already doing, mm -hmm. some of which are uh, their enablers. Uh, an example of that is solar electric propulsion for satellites, which is a way that you get a lot more gas mileage from your satellite than traditional chemical propellants. And that's a way that you can move out further into the solar system. We're doing that supporting the, the NASA Psyche mission, going to metal-rich asteroid, the power propulsion element for the Lunar Gateway, and other technology which is probably mislabeled as artificial intelligence because it really isn't, is machine learning applied to vast quantities of data. And just to give you an example, the Maxar imaging satellites in a single day collect enough imagery that if you were to say, okay, Jim, I want you to sit there and, and pull out all of the objects that you can find in the image, the buildings, the cars, the ships, et cetera, chances are it would take you about 85 years to do that. 
So just not practical for humans to be able to plow through that. So we've been applying modern techniques in machine learning to pull that sort of information out and uh, creating 3D models of the planet. So, you know, we don't live in flatland. We live in a 3D world. And uh, 3D turns out to be very important, whether it's for visualization or for positional accuracy. So I could go on and on, but Mm -hmm. um, those are some of the ones that are interesting. Uh, I want to ask you to elaborate a bit on your point about artificial intelligence. So first, just to make sure I understood your your claim correctly, Maxar's imagery satellites are taking enough pictures, essentially, of the Earth's surface every day that it's 85 work years worth of effort for one person to just look at all of the stuff that you take every single day. So every single day, you're producing 85 years worth of work. Pretty much. So you need artificial intelligence to sort of do the first pass of the imagery and say, hey, humans, of our incredible quantity of imagery, this is the stuff that we recommend you spend your time. Right. Great. And so one area where Maxar has become increasingly a household name is in imagery related to the war in Ukraine. Um, Just about every day, we look at the newspaper and we see some photo taken by a Maxar satellite and it's the credited imagery. And we here at CSIS do a lot with satellite reconnaissance imagery, much of it taken by Maxar. So can you talk a little bit about how artificial intelligence and technology has sort of created the Maxar that we know today as a satellite imagery company and how that's playing out uh, in terms of the war in Ukraine and, and what the work you're doing there? In addition to the it would take 85 years... The world's a big place, and not all parts of the world are equally interesting at a particular moment in time. So having the ability to cue the humans to where something interesting is happening, it could be the presence of a large military convoy, the massing of troops around the border between Russia and Ukraine that preceded the invasion, changes in activity in a particular area. It's, it's a way that technology becomes a force multiplier for the humans to allow the humans to be able to comprehend things that are on a much larger scale than we're used to. So it's like we, we take a picture of the military base every day, but we only ask a human to look at it when suddenly there's 20 more aircraft there. Well, I think the problem is that it's not just there's a military base. It's there are lots of military right. bases. There are lots of areas that aren't necessarily military bases, but places where equipment can show up. Uh, So even knowing where to look is often a challenge. And that's one of the reasons why you need a lot of collection capacity, along with the ability to use technology to process that in a way that cues it up for the humans to apply. You know, humans actually do have intelligence, at least most humans seem to, whereas I would say that we're still far away from having, you know, machine intelligence in the sense that we think of in movies and the like. Sure. And and how does that translate into uh, what the customer is actually getting? So usually when they're buying reconnaissance imagery from Axar, they're essentially buying pictures, right? Um, or at least that would be the traditional model. What does it look like today, you know, for a customer who wants imagery and really what they want is insights and information about what might be going on in Ukraine or what might be going on in world commodity markets? How do companies work with Maxar? So you're right that the, the traditional model has been imagery, effectively imagery as a service. So whether it's you have the ability to task where the satellites point or you're simply getting a feed of all of what gets collected in a particular area. But increasingly, we're seeing there is demand for 
I'll call it two classes of derived products. One of them is derived information layers, like for example, 3D, building footprints, roads, et cetera, to rapidly say map an area that's changed. The other is for the ability to apply spectrum of machine learning models against the imagery to prioritize where do you want to go take a look and typically it's not just hey there's a a thing here it's there's a thing here and here's a little picture that shows you the thing because the machine is not 100 percent right so you want to maximize the end user's ability to understand not only what the machine learning model or the, the Maxar software is, is claiming is happening, but also the basis for that claim, the evidence. You want to, valid, you want to validate it. Exactly. Yeah. So right. Maxar is sort of a blend of, uh, it's the kind of a third generation company. It blended a lot of companies through acquisitions and all. And so when I think of it, and this is what your conversation made me think about, it's, it's in the data business and it's in the infrastructure business or maybe the space infrastructure business. Am I leaving anything out? I think you're right. It, we t- tend to think of Maxar as having a space infrastructure and an Earth intelligence component. And the two of them, obviously, they're not in different country codes. They overlap pretty significantly. Uh, for example, our space business is building our next generation set of imaging satellites, Worldview Legion. And we're doing that in a way that brings some of what has recently become much more relevant in the space world, which is applying your commercial mindset, an element of eating your own cooking, to building satellites that are significantly more cost effective than prior generations. I was going to ask about that. Which right now, which business is more important to Max? Our data or infrastructure? Which of my children is my favorite? <laughs> I was asking a revenue question. Revenue, the uh, and I'm I'm not the finance guy, mm-hmm. so you'll have to look at our filings. But the Earth intelligence business revenue is slightly bigger than the space infrastructure oh, business, okay. but they have very different business models, yeah. right? The one is a service, one is building hardware. Cost of infrastructure has been coming down. I mean, that's one of the big changes, say, over the last 25 years is what it used to cost. And so the first imaging satellite you guys built, I can't even remember the name. Was it Orbibage or something? The very first one was was actually Early Bird and then Quick Bird. Uh, Iconos was at about the same time as Quick Bird. Uh, Orbview was at about the same time as Iconos. And then we transitioned to the Worldview series and GUI1 in the middle of that, and now Worldview Legion. How has the cost of infrastructure, acquiring that infrastructure changed? And what does that do for competition? Because we all know the ability to build a pretty good satellite is much easier than cheaper than it was, say. So I'll give you two data points. Worldview 4, which was built, it was part of the combination of GUI and, and Digital Globe. It was initially started by GUI, built by Lockheed, uh, cost about $850 million. Worldview Legion, which we're building, costs latest numbers I think we've shared are about $700 million for six satellites. And they collect three times as much imagery as Worldview 4. And because of the orbit choices, because we're flying them in a mix of orbits, not spending as much time over polar bears and penguins, more time over the places where people live, they're collecting three times as much usable imagery on top of that, just three times as much collection capacity. So it's like an order of magnitude improvement. What does that do for the market, to the market for you? I mean, what does that, how does that change it? It means we can offer a lot more capacity. And there are really three things that we were achieving with Worldview Legion. 
uh, first and foremost, we have customers who rely on us. And so providing continuity, making sure that there's always going to be capacity to serve What, what kind of customers? Um, the U.S. government, allied governments, uh, large technology companies that have based their workflows on having the ability to ingest satellite imagery over mm-hmm. you know, high resolution, positionally accurate, with global coverage. The second is, like I said, polar bears and penguins, cute, but don't pay the bills. So most people live south of 50 degrees north latitude. Having the ability to concentrate capacity in those areas where there's the most demand is important. And there is a growing, seemingly nearly insatiable demand for high quality imagery in parts of the world that are not well served by polar orbiting satellites. The third thing is not everything happens at the same time every day. So having the ability to observe throughout the day is important because there are applications that require more than once a day or once every few days revisit. And so by having satellites with Worldview Legion in mid-inclination orbits, we can get like 15, 16 revisits a day. So it's not the same satellite revisiting it, so you've got multiple satellites going right, on. Right, overhead. that's exactly right. And that's a that's a transition that sort of go back to the very beginning. It was all about the satellite. Mm-hmm. It's become now much more about the information and less about which satellite, which phenomenology happened to collect it. What does this do for the customer base? I mean, are you seeing more customers come in? We are. Uh, we've done things to reduce the cost of, if you will, the barrier to entry mm-hmm. for customers. So in the, um, the allied uh, government world, the initial product offering was something we called a direct access facility, which was you've got your own antenna, you know, big bird bath. You have the ability to directly send uplink requests to the satellite to have it point and collect imagery and downlink it. We've now taken that to virtual platforms. We have online platforms where you can get the feed as opposed to, you know, you don't need a dish or anything. You just have a web browser or connect it into any of your end applications. Uh, We have a a program currently with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency called Global Enhanced Geoint Delivery. And that serves like half a million downstream users with like over a hundred different portal platforms across the U.S. government. And, and you don't need a special terminal or a receiver. You just, it can be anything. The special is like something that has electronics in it, basically. Uh, so that can connect to the internet. Okay. That's a cool uh, lowering of the barrier. Indeed. Right. So there's two interesting technology bets, you know, that Maxar has really made over the last 10 years. The first is the creation of Maxar as we know it today, which, as Jim mentioned, is the result of the merger of a lot of space companies with a great deal of heritage. Companies like Space Systems Loral, which forms the basis of your communication satellite manufacturing business. Companies like GUI and Digital Globe, which you already mentioned, which were the, the basis of imagery. So I want to ask you about the sort of decision to vertically integrate, to become your own supplier of satellites. What benefits does that provide the company? And it's been a few years now, so how would you say it's going? Well, the crossover point for eating our own cooking is in the Earth observation space where we're building the Worldview Legion satellites. And I think you've got one data point out there, which is the the cost delta between what it costs to acquire Worldview 4, the the $850 million, and the $700 million for the six Worldview Legion satellites. And for, for folks who are listening, you know, the, the Worldview 4 is vaguely analogous to a Hubble telescope, except it's pointed at the Earth instead of... A little bit smaller. Yeah. 
But it's a big satellite. 2,500 kilograms. Right. Uh, each worldview legion is about 750 kilograms. Yep. Uh, so they're quite a bit small. And you said the the sixth satellite, the new constellation, costs less money, but it's going to collect more imagery. And is right. that equivalent quality imagery, or do you do you lose some quality of the imagery as you go smaller? It's equivalent to better quality. No kidding. Wow. So the trick in the imaging business is you need a big enough telescope to be able to get good imagery. You're just not going to be able to get decent imagery. Imagine you're sitting at a football game and you're sitting, you know, in the crappy seats in the end zone, the, the wrong end zone, and you're trying to watch what's going on. The team is about to make a goal and you're taking pictures of the crowd. The heads are going to be, you know, little dots on the screen. Uh, if you had one of our imaging satellites sitting in the end zone, you'd probably be counting their nose hairs. So the resolution difference that you get from the big aperture is uh, that's an enabler to be able to let you see things like 10-inch resolution on the ground, which is what our satellites are capable of achieving. That used to be a tippy-top secret. So uh, how are you guys regulated when it comes to resolutions? The regulatory authority comes from the 1992 Land Remote Sensing Policy yeah, Act. Yeah. NOAA is the agency uh, within the Department of Commerce that issues the licenses. And there has been a gradual relaxation of restrictions over the years. And I think there are really two things that have driven that. The first is that there is growing international competition. So you're mm -hmm. seeing many more countries that are capable of fielding their own space systems. Uh, and the other is that I think the industry has demonstrated a tremendous a support to national security over the last three decades, that you know, we've been responsible, we as an industry have been responsible, as opposed to when the industry first got started, nobody knew how it was going to play out. Who are your competitors then? Uh, well, it's a growing list internationally. Uh, there's Airbus. A number of countries are putting up their own satellites. There are companies in the U.S. But I'd say that more broadly than competitors, what we're seeing is a proliferation of complementary phenomenologies. So we're seeing the emergence of commercial radar satellites mm -hmm. that can see through clouds. We're seeing the emergence of radio frequency mapping from space. It's from companies like Capella Space or Hawkeye 360. Capella, Capella for the radar, yeah. ISI, uh, Umbra, uh, Predisar, Hawkeye 360, and Aurora Insight for the radio frequency, Spire for AIS. You guys just do EO though, right? Uh, well, we have we operate our own electro-optical satellites, but we integrate data from multiple providers. Uh, so we have an offering called Crow's Nest, mm -hmm. and that provides tipping and queuing from radar, AIS, uh, RF signals from space of maritime activity to go queue an electro-optical satellite to go take a closer look. So wait, just for folks who aren't familiar with these these types of terms, AIS is, I think it means automatic identification of ships. It's so. it's a regulatory requirement for all maritime vessels to have this broadcast. Above a certain size. Yeah, above a certain size to sort of broadcast their location to minimize the risk of, of crashing into other ships. And this can actually be collected from space because the signal, if you have a, a sensitive enough receiver. And so what you're saying is that Maxar partners with companies who have satellites who collect this AIS data, also partners with companies who have radar data that can see through clouds and provide an integrated picture of that. And so then that is sold to the customer? So That's right. If, if I understand you correctly, you would be buying data from a company like Capella, buying data from a company like uh, Spire, and then you would be integrating it with your own data package and reselling that to sort of the end user who gets 
it the best so of much, all worlds. It isn't is that so right? much integrating a bunch of data and saying, you know, dropping it on the customer and saying, here, you go figure it out. It's yeah. actually tying it together into a workflow hmm. that addresses a particular problem. So you want to know, for example, where is illegal phishing happening? Mm-hmm. Well, there are some characteristics about that. It's happening where fish are. Uh, <laughs> generally, there are boats that are involved. Yep. Generally, they don't like people knowing where they are. So oftentimes they, they go dark. They turn off the AIS, the AIS when they enter the illegal fishing and zone. And so, you know, you have things that are characteristics that say, hey, maybe something that they shouldn't be doing is happening. And if you combine multiple data sources, you can get a picture of, hey, maybe something's happening in this area. Let's go take a high resolution shot that allows you to actually identify the vessels in question. So a government agency, what where they would sign a contract with Maxar and what they would receive is a cloud enabled software service or just notifications that you know suspicious activity is taking place. It's typically notifications with a uh, here are image chips, here are characteristics of the vessels that are involved. But it's not necessarily a government agency. The Associated Press back in, was it 2015, I think, they won the, uh, the Pulitzer Prize for public service. And that was the seafood from slaves story. Mm. And it was using, they did some tremendously good reporting work. This is, uh, I think it was Martha Mendoza and, and a number of uh, her colleagues at the Associated Press and gave us, uh, this is before we had all of the, the tipping and queuing, but they gave us some areas to go search with our imaging satellites. And we found the smoking gun, which was the transshipment from slave fishing boats to a commercial reefer. And that result was the uh, slave fishing ring was rolled up and about 2000 slaves got freed. That's really incredible story. Are there regulatory changes that would help you? Do you have regulatory obstacles now? This used to be a highly regulated uh, and somewhat obstructionist business, but that was a while ago. Still problems or no? It's it's better now. It's not perfectly better, but we're seeing significantly more partnership behavior from the regulators than was the case back 30 years ago. So some recent examples we've had the ability to go down to quarter meter resolution was back in i think 2014 they're now allowing 10 centimeter resolution they're licensing radar satellites they're licensing these rf satellites the ability to do non-earth imaging which helps with space traffic management and can you um for folks who are listening who are not familiar with satellite imagery, can you just give us a sense of what's the difference between quarter meter resolution and 10 centimeter resolution in terms of you know what the actual end customer sees? Right. This is 10 centimeters per pixel. That's right. In, so it's a pixel image. on the side is 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. Aerial imagery is 10 to 15 centimeter resolution. And we're able to process our 30 centimeter imagery to something that looks a lot like 15 centimeter resolution aerial imagery. I don't want to, you don't violate the laws of physics. You can't collect information that's not there. But think of that class as being aerial-like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, drone imagery where you're you're flying however low you want, that could be a few centimeters. This is a little off topic, but how did the intelligence community react to this? Because some of the stuff you're saying is to be considered a secret. I can't speak to what they were thinking or anything other than the ultimate actions that were taken. So the intelligence community is a large customer of ours. And the restrictions, which have been through a, an interagency regulatory process, clearly 
over the years, they've become more relaxed. Now, why is the intelligence community a large customer? Well, I mean, there are policy reasons, but also the world's a really big place. Mm -hmm. And commercial imagery can offer a very cost-effective way of unclassified, shareable imagery that allows government systems to focus on things that they are uniquely capable of doing. The trade-off we used to look at was the cost of the exquisite capabilities, which was high, and the cost of the commercial capabilities, which was much lower. Mm -hmm. um, but you now deliver sort of, it sounds like you're getting close to delivering what we used to call exquisite capabilities. Well, without... Yeah, this is getting tricky. Without, without commenting on what the government uh, does or what exquisite capabilities are in any any technological area, there's always a rising tide. And what that means is that things that weren't possible before because they just were unaffordable become possible. And so as technology moves along, it creates more opportunities across the board. And things that are at the bleeding edge are exquisite. And things that have become more affordable become more affordable. And it's fair to say that for nearly all of the markets that you serve, as the commercial player, you, you're usually the premium provider, right? You, you provide the higher performance capability, which may or may not come at a higher cost, you know, depending on the area. That's accurate. I do want to come back to something that was touched on earlier, which is cost of satellite does not equate to cost of product. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is if you're focused on just the cost of a satellite and not how much you get for what you pay, mm -hmm. you end up missing the true economic calculation, which is how much do you get for what you pay? Right. Because like a $750 million satellite that takes one picture and then dies is very different from a $750 million satellite that takes a million pictures and then dies. Or for that matter, a yeah. $750 million collection of six satellites that collects a vast quantity of imagery outperforms a much larger constellation of much less expensive satellites that have vastly less collection capacity. Oh, this is interesting. Okay, so what you're getting at is, you know, Maxar is changing its technological portfolio away from these 2,500 kilogram satellites towards these 750 kilogram satellites. And it appears to be sort of a unmitigated good it's across both spot. performance and cost. It's but there's also spot. this part of the market that is making, you know, shoebox sized two kilogram satellites that have like a cell phone style camera, which you can in space take a picture with that type of camera. But in terms of meters per pixel, the performance is, is way, way, way lower. The so performance we, is low and then the capacity is low. And so you mm -hmm. go ask the question, is the juice worth the squeeze? Mm -hmm. And there is, you can imagine a curve. And unfortunately, nobody can see my hands here. But <laughs> uh, at one extreme, you have these incredibly large telescopes in space, like the James Webb Space Telescope. Mm -hmm. okay. How much did that cost? Okay, well, I don't a lot, <laughs> and it's, it's plus it's not, more than ten billion dollars. It's not something that anybody is planning to point at Earth because it's a different, it's an infrared telescope. Yeah, but it's a amazing piece of engineering. You know, kudos to the team that finally pulled it off. But that's probably not the design point that you want to operate right at on the on the, the, on the cost and performance trade-off curve. Right, it is at the tippy top of performance and at the tippy top of cost. The tippy 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 top of cost. Right. But when you look over your shoulder, who do you see closing in on you? Who are your competitors both as kind of, – because we're not the only people that build constellations. 
So, you know, Airbus obviously is, uh, is, is up there. They're offering a, um, a satellite that has comparable imaging performance, not nearly as much collection capacity as we have. Just one, not a constellation. Uh, it's, they've got uh, two up right now. They plan to have another two more up. Uh, forget what the timing is on the launch. And when you say collection capacity, this is like one picture covers so many square miles. It's more, uh, you can measure collection capacity in one of two ways, either the total number of square kilometers at a given resolution that can be collected yep. per day, or you can measure it as uh, like the number of gigapixels, which normalizes mm. across resolution, and Max are still significantly out collects. You're uh, still you're still the premium provider in the commercial space, right? Yeah. There are other companies that are entering the market, but I'd say we're seeing them go after other underserved areas. Mm -hmm. An example of that is Planet with the Dove constellation that is doing daily refresh of the planet. We actually use some freely available sources like Landsat and Sentinel-2. These are provided by NASA, uh, NASA or NOAA. And the ESA. Or, yeah, and, yeah. and we have a change detection service that will allow us to identify areas that have changed in the world. And we use that to cue our satellites to go in. Take a so you use the Landsat data, which is pretty coarse, to cue your more precise collection. Right. It's Landsat and Sentinel-2, mm -hmm. and we'll do a uh, what's called a persistent change monitor, which is, mm -hmm. it's easy to detect changes. The question is, which are the ones that are significant? So clouds are not a significant change, <laughs> but the, buildings are. The, um, this is CSIS, so we do have to ask about China. And I know the Chinese have expressed envy sometimes over the commercial space segment in the U.S., not maybe publicly, but they, they look at it as something they'd like to have themselves. Where do you see China fitting into this picture? And They're building a lot. Yeah, and they're launching a lot. They are. And, and for listeners who aren't super familiar with this, 10 years ago, China was considerably behind the United States in just about every segment of space technology in the space industry. And now there are areas where they are genuinely ahead. The performance of the Baidu navigation constellation is in some metrics superior to the performance of, of GPS. I think imagery satellites is an area where the United States is still a considerable leader. Um, but, you know, Maxar does a lot more than just imagery satellites. What, what do you see in terms of competition from China? You know, we're seeing them putting a lot of money into building their space industrial base. They're launching a lot of satellites. They're also doing things that we think are probably not in the best interest, like they blow up satellites with their anti-satellite weapons. Right. Oh, everyone makes mistakes. Um, well, let's hope that that trend does not continue. So I think they was, got the message. Uh, At least well, it appears they got the message. Well, I don't know. I mean, there, there's still areas The Russians where, went ahead and did it fairly recently. The Russians yeah. didn't get the message, but that would be true across the board. Yeah, I mean, China, China's behavior in this area is, is surprising in a lot of ways. Um, one of the things that the international relations community thinks is a pretty obvious mutual good is sharing data around space debris, right? I don't want your satellite to crash into my trash because it'll blow up your satellite and cause a lot more trash, which could blow up everybody else's satellite. So you'd think we all have an incentive to share data about space debris location, but China does not share that data, which is sort of a, an interesting international relations and political choice. Blowing up their satellite and creating a lot of the space trash in the first place was another kind of interesting choice. But I I'm curious if you could dive a little bit into China's entry into the commercial market. 
there are areas where China has gained market share, such as in uh, communication satellite manufacturing, a little bit less so in launch vehicles, but that's an area that they have a lot of ambition in. So what do you think about China as a competitor in the commercial market? Well, in one respect, they're, they're not commercial, right? So the thing you always worry about as a commercial player is, are you operating on a, an even playing field? Right. Like you, you would like to sell a satellite to a country and you're saying, look at my cost, look at my performance. You should choose me. And China is saying, well, my cost is bad and my performance is bad. But think about the, the politics of aligning yourself with China on this deal or something like that. Yeah. For example, they also use subsidies. So mm -hmm. I know they will approach a company, a country and make them a lowball offer. Not just in satellites, but in other things. And that's something we're not going to do commercially. And I think one of the factors, getting back to your earlier question, that has gone into the relaxation of regulatory handcuffs on U.S. companies has been the realization that uh, not everybody internationally plays by the same set of rules that the United States does. Do you think we made that change in sufficient time to catch up, or had we fallen behind? Or uh, Well, the, 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 the snarky view... Colleen may give me the hook here, but the snarky view is that for the longest time, the approach was wait until the other guys have caught up and then take the handcuffs off the U.S. That seems to be beginning to change, realizing that the way you win a race is not actually waiting for the other person to catch up. <laughs> you got to run the whole time. You don't stop. Yeah. You don't look back. So that, that's actually kind of a good segue into we, we've talked about your relationship with the U.S. government as a regulator. Uh, we've talked a little bit about your relationship with the US government as a customer, but you're the chief technology officer. And so I'd be very curious to understand, as a company that serves a lot of commercial customers, whether that's somebody like a DirecTV or somebody like a SiriusXM, but also serves you know, the government customers for both imagery and space technology capabilities like the Mars robot arm uh, that you mentioned. What is the interplay of the government and Maxar and your commercial customers when you think about managing the Maxar technology portfolio? How does the government play in? Uh, well, if you would have asked me a question like that, if we were living in the 1950s or the 1960s, I'd say that the government was far and away the largest investor in the development of technologies, and that it was very much a government-directed, uh, they, they put money into a particular technology, maybe you can leverage that for commercial use. I think what you've seen in the last decade has been a significant flip, mm. which is things that were being developed commercially are now being applied to the government. And I'll give you mm. a couple of examples. So Maxar was far and away the the I don't know if we were the first, but certainly the largest user of electric thrusters for orbit raising for geosynchronous mm -hmm. communication satellites. And, and and for folks who are listening, what we're talking about here is the things on a satellite other after the rocket lets the satellite go, the satellite still has a little bit of tiny rockets on board to help it move around. And traditionally, that would be done with chemical propellants that actually are burning or uh, catalyzing or something like that. And now you can actually use electricity to ionize a gas and shoot that out the back. So literally ion engines uh, or Hall effect thrusters or solar electric propulsion are all terms for this technology. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the benefit of that is, other than the coolness factor, that you get significantly more, if you will, gas mileage per kilogram of fuel. You get a lot more go 
for that kilogram of fuel than you would with a chemical. The trade-off is that you don't get as much acceleration. So yes, you get great gas mileage, but you're not going to win a drag race. Yeah. And Maxar was the, we invested in doing that for our commercial satellites. That's now what is part of the Psyche mission for JPL mm-hmm. going to a metal-rich asteroid. That's part of the power propulsion element for the Lunar Gateway. So that was a case where the government leveraged technology that was developed on the commercial side. Because you wanted to spend fewer satellite kilograms on gas and more kilograms on stuff that makes you money, right? Like communication. Well, it was stuff that makes our customers money, right? Yeah, exactly. Right, so yes. That's a technology that the government is using for mission performance. That might be a good transition then then to uh, tell us here in the last couple of minutes, where do you see the opportunities, the market opportunities and the technology opportunities? When you look ahead to Maxar as a business, Mm Where do you see the opportunities, both for market and customers and for the technologies that uh, the history of ion engines is a little more complicated, but yeah. things like that. Where, what are you thinking about when you build this? What are you focusing on to make Maxar a more profitable company? So I think there are a few, there are a few directions that are relevant. One in the space area is what I'll call broadly the industrialization of satellite manufacturing. Up until fairly recently, satellite manufacturing was basically a cottage industry. It was not industrialized the way you think manufacturing consumer electronics has been industrialized. Uh, We're talking like dozens per year. You mean not commoditized? Yeah. Satellites were snowflakes, right? Every satellite different. And applying modern manufacturing, like design for manufacturability, it never really made sense if you were only building a single satellite at a time. But there have been a couple of things that have driven a market change that has caused the satellite industry to think about doing things differently. One of them was launch costs came down. Okay, thank you, SpaceX. Competition in the launch industry has reduced the cost of getting things into space. Combine that with a reduction in some of the electronics costs that go into satellites. Now it starts to become practical to bring in the third trend, which is there are applications that benefit from large proliferated constellations of satellites in space. So there's a a big trend or shift in how you go about building satellites to start thinking about building constellations of satellites. And you see an example of just some of the early benefits of that with Worldview Legion, which is just six satellites, uh, but for a fraction of what a single satellite costs and for more capacity. Uh, obviously, you're seeing examples of that with the OneWeb constellation, with SpaceX's Starlink. Uh, so that's that's an interesting trend. It's broadly speaking the industrialization of satellite manufacturing. And you're going to do it with both uh, imagery and communications. Well, we are doing it with imagery, and we are certainly, in many respects, Maxar was probably, without realizing it, already at the forefront of industrializing the business of building communication satellites in that, like I said, we've built 300 some odd on orbit, 90 plus on orbit now, many built on a design platform that we call the 1300, similar bus. So there's already a lot of, without realizing it, thinking around how do you industrialize the business of building satellites. So that's going to change your costs. It kept, keeps driving the cost down And it allows you to get more capability per dollar, which then opens up the mission space for things that you might be able to do. So an example of a recent win for Maxar was the, uh, as the bus provider, 
uh, working for L3 Harris as the prime on the T1 track. We're building uh, greater than significantly greater than one satellites uh, to support a satellite constellation. So that's one area. The second one which we hit on was the ability to apply considerable compute power, whether it's using um, classic machine learning, extracting 3D information, fusing different data sets. That is, that's probably the second one, which is you've got just the ability to apply insane amounts of compute power for price points that used to be completely unaffordable, but in particular by leveraging cloud where you don't have to build your data center to handle the peak, but you can spike up and spike down as necessary. You can do a lot of really interesting data processing to convert that data deluge into something that's consumable. So those are a couple. Um, I think the third one is that humanity has uh, just a growing desire for instant gratification and the timeliness for access to information, whether it's communication or access to imagery or access to insights is just driving further and further reductions in timelines so that things become much more instantaneous. And you know, I've given you some examples of that, mm -hmm. the direct access that we do for our allied governments, online web access, and you're gonna see more of that. That's really cool. Anything, final thoughts, questions, remarks? Uh, no, that does it for me. And thanks for being with us here today. This was a really fascinating conversation. Sure, happy to be here. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode. Thank you.